On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, you're going to meet the real deal. And you're going to hear some old war stories from some not old guys. It's episode 83. Turn it up! Told you, man. There's no rules. You just have some fun. All righty, guys. Episode 83. I think I got that right. I actually didn't write it down. So uh, producer, Tim will, producer Tim will fix that if I get it wrong. But today we got a special episode for you because we got my buddy, my dog, got Craig Kendrick, my missionary man from, uh, from Texas, flew in today and didn't even take a nap, man. Came straight here just to no hang nap. with you guys. No nap. Just ready to go, bro. Good to see you, buddy. You did get a turkey sandwich, though. I did get a very good turkey sandwich. That's, Thank you, Emily. That is <laughs> that is an essential of missionary work. Is a good turkey sandwich once Absolutely. in a while. Absolutely. All right, guys. So I'm I'm bringing Craig to you because he's um he's a good buddy of mine, been a good friend for a long time because we do mission work together. So you guys have heard before about some of the stuff. I haven't gone into great detail on this show, but some of the stuff that I do uh, with World Hope, where we go and train pastors, I spend a lot of time focusing in Latin America because that's kind of what I was um, assigned to. And what I do in Latin America, Craig does in French-speaking West Africa, francophone. West Africa. There you yep. go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I figured I would just, uh, you know, kind of get one of my, one of my mentors. I hope I'm not making you blush, but the cameras aren't on so nobody can see, but I'm, yeah, I'm blushing you, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's obvious by the way I can see it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you've been a great mentor to me over the years, man. When I started with, so my, my first trip with world hope was only my second mission trip ever. The first one I took, I was 17. And then when I got into mission work, it was, it was world hope stuff straight out the gate. And my first trip was to Ivory coast. Now I didn't go with you. I went with Stuart, but um, you know you were you were kind of laying the groundwork for that stuff. And so when I got there, one of the first things I'm hearing is, you know, do you know Craig Kendrick? Do you know Craig Kendrick? And I'm like, no, nah, I got to meet this cat. I don't know him yet. But um, you were already well, you know, respected by the time I got over there. And then when I find out more about the structure and just how the whole ministry works and everything, started getting a feel for kind of what it is that you do. I'm like. I get the strategy. And then I started calling you with questions. And then I started saying, hey, what would you do in this situation that I'm in? And then we finally, finally got to work together in Honduras. I think that was, yeah, that was the first time I actually met you in person. Honduras 2017. That's right. That's right. Yep. And then we, uh, we did West Africa once together uh, with the team. And uh, yeah, other than that, I see you at the director's meetings now, now that yeah. they made me a director. By the way, one of the wildest truths of my life that I still can't get my head around is that I am a coworker with you now instead of just calling you up like a little kid tugging on your shirt saying, Craig, can I help you with this? So I appreciate you, man. And it's a pleasure to be here, Dustin. I just want to talk to you about how you see the global mission of Christ, because, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you don't know unless you're told, right? There's like, there's two ways you can find out about what God's doing in the world. You can go and see it. And you can also just kind of hear guys talk about it from their perspective, because the world is not a huge place. It's all under Christ, but it's a big place, right? And it's too big for, sure. for us. And God's doing different things in different areas. So you've got a perspective that I think is really, really valuable for people. So why don't you give uh, our folks a little bit of a rundown of, first, we'll talk about what you do in West Africa, and then just and then I'll get you a quick summary of, of how you got there. Okay. Well, first of all, again, it's a pleasure to be with Dustin in West Richland, Washington. And so it's my first time to Washington. And I get to be on the east side where everything's cool, and uh, <laughs> according to him... It's like 104 outside. No, but it's it's a pleasure. So, you know, my title since 2012 has been the Associate Director of the World Hope Bible Institute in French-speaking, and really now we say Africa, 
We used to say West Africa, but now that I've worked in Central Africa, they kind of prefer that that stay central and not West. Oh, and territorial so, beef, huh? So it's it's just all of the French-speaking countries in Africa, including, depending on whether we do the English or the French, Madagascar and Rwanda and Burundi. But there's about 22 countries that that speak French or have French as a second language. And so my role is to is to bring the introduce the World Hope Bible Institute into all of these French speaking countries eventually. That's of course what it will that'll be the end of my work is when it's in every country and they they have it in the reproducing. So they don't need us anymore, right? That's the goal and beautiful you know we started in uh, Ivory Coast in 2014, signed a charter there and then you and Stuart just kind of kind of knocked it out of the park with teaching soteriology and hermeneutics and they loved that and it just kind of from there you know, Ivory Coast really has taken this on, and we can go through that a little bit more. And then 2015 started in Benin, another French-speaking country. If you if you get your Africa map out, you can kind of follow this. And uh, I literally, I did not know, I'd never heard of Benin yeah. un- until uh, it must have been it must have been uh, Allison until Allison called me up said, "Do you want to go to Benin for us?" And I said, "And you've been there, but what?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so and then uh and then from Benin we started in Cameroon also in 2015 and we've just had we've seen God do amazing things in the Bible Institute in French speaking Africa. So, you know, we started about 8 9 years ago and we've uh we've entered into 12 of the 22 French speaking countries and you know the goal is in the next couple of years because of the multiplication and the national leadership we think we can get the Bible Institute in every one of those countries initially and hopefully get to a multiply multiplication um, process like they are in Ivory Coast and Cameroon in all those countries hopefully within the next 10 years so yeah so let's trace the the life cycle of this I one of the things we always say about the church in Ephesus is that you get the whole biography in the Bible right you see them planted in Acts 18 and 19 and uh, and then you know you see the book of Ephesians and then you see in Revelation that you know Jesus has to come in and correct some of what's going on there and so you've got a, a pretty decent snapshot of the life cycle of this this church in Ephesus and so now 10 years on from the first, or just about 10 years on, from the first um, location in Ivory Coast, there's been a Absolutely. bit of a life cycle, right? Absolutely. And, and it seems like we're still on the, the uptick of that, of that bell curve, which sure. hopefully never, <laughs> never has a decline. Yeah. But I mean, it started because you, and I, I think we'll probably get back, you know, on the timeline here to how you got there, but basically you met a guy named Jean-Paul. And Correct. stuff just kind of went kablooey. So before that, you are you're an IMB International Mission Board missionary in where? So in 2001, there was this deal called 9/11. Yeah, and can you uh, use it in a sentence, please? What's that? Yeah. So so 9/11. So my wife and I were were associate pastors at a church. I'm teaching students. And uh, we just kind of begin to sense the call that there's as I'm going to seminary, I'm seeing all these guys that are you know, they're going to lead the church, but you know, the Muslims don't, they just, they just don't have a whole lot of witness in, in my mind. And so we begin to kind of work through the process and then nine 11, 2001 happens. And that just kind of, for me, solidifies, uh, the call to go and just preach the gospel to Muslims. Cause what a, what a jihadist kamikaze needs is the gospel to change from hate to love. Come it's on. the only solution. So we just, you know, after 9-11, it just kind of moved Julie and I forward. Julie's my wife. 
and uh, we we put out an application with the IMB, and nine months later, we were in, of all places, we wanted to go reach Muslims. God sent us to Paris, France. And uh, believe it or not, in Paris, France, you've got 12 million people all around in the suburbs, but about 4 million of those are Muslim background believers. A, a third of them? A third. In the, wow. In, Two million from North Africa, about a million from West Africa, and about a million from other places around the world. So that was a third of them. And that was back in two thousand one, two thousand two, two. And and the the proportions uh, the proportions of Muslims have grown since then, if I understand correctly. I, I, absolutely. Wow. By, by reproduction and just just because it probably I don't know that it's grown a whole lot. France has been fairly rigid on trying to keep French culture in okay. Paris, of course, but it would be at least a third. Wow. And so we went with the IMB and worked with, uh, you know, we were trying to find our niche of who we were going to work with. And God just kind of laid it out that nobody was reaching the West African immigrants. And so you learn French and then you start going into the West African neighborhoods that are in the suburbs and, and just kind of fill out what people groups are there from sub-Saharan West Africa and what languages they speak and, and what is their reached status we say in the church you know have they been has the gospel been shared are there believers you know the reach status goes up is there a church etc and so we found three people groups that were over a hundred thousand in the pair of suburbs that were all unreached on in the world and now, so people we, groups let, let's define that yeah. because a lot of times we'll talk about people groups in terms of of languages and so these guys speak french but French is the trade language, right? And so then they've got Correct. their tribal languages they might speak at home or whatever else. So when you when you talk about three different people groups, are you breaking it down by language or countries they're from, or how did you measure that? By language. Okay. So, so what were the other languages then other than French? So the languages that we found to be the most common in the most unreached people groups in the Paris suburbs were the Soninke, which is a people group that lives along the Senegal River that defines the border of Mauritania, Senegal, and Mali. Okay. And they are proud to say, as, I, as we began to share the gospel with them, we are 100% Muslim. We don't want anything to do with what you got. Okay. That's okay. the way it started. And then you've got the Fufulde Pular. It's a much larger people group. So, Nike, there's only about 5 million. The Fufulde, like total in the world? Total in the okay. world. And the Fufulde Pular is a much larger group that goes from West Senegal, the west side of Africa, all the way across the the border of the Saharan desert all the way to Somali. Okay. To Somalia. And so they, <clears throat> that people group is kind of a, a people group of shepherds, but they also are very unreached. They do have some churches, some discipleship, a Bible or a new Testament in their language. So Nikkei didn't even have the new Testament yet. Wow. And, um, and then the last one was the Bambara, which is a Jula subsidiary language that, uh, but the Bambara are the ones who come from Mali. So okay. those were the three that we began to target. And Mali is, that's, that is a Muslim country, essentially. Very much so. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. Okay. So. so you're in Paris for about what, six years? So we're there for six years. Yeah. Then what happens? How, how do you wind up back in Houston, Texas? So I, I know there are some unreached people there as well, but that's not exactly the absolutely. same as the Muslims in so, France. So God opens the door for us to get to France, uh, puts the calling in our heart. We go there. We find these three people groups. We probably, through a partnership with Jesus Film and Campus Crusade for Christ, we put a DVD in their language. This is pre-iPhone. So we have to do DVDs, and uh, we put all those languages, Arab, English, French, on it so that they can watch the Jesus film in their mother tongue. And so 
you know, for those six years, we probably evangelized through the Jesus film and through just sharing the gospel, a hundred thousand yeah, of these unreached people. And, and we saw some disciples come out of that. And, and we were, and we built up a team of um, other Western missionaries and some local French missionaries who began to work with us. But, um, so we do that for six years and then, you know, we go with three children. We have a child there that has special needs and God says, Hey, um, you know, when our special needs son got to be five, there were some issues with green card and his care that just caused us to say, okay, we've got a team. They're rocking and rolling. We're ready to multiply. That's what it's all about anyway. They don't need us. They just need to keep going for Jesus. And so God opened the door for us to go back to the U.S. and do some, well, we didn't know what, yeah. but we did some interim work and you want me to keep going from there? Yeah, I mean, basically, I'll, I'll just kind of skip over a yeah. couple of the points here because I want to get to what God's doing in Africa. So the, you're, you're doing some, some student ministry and things like that, very important ministry at formative times in people's lives. But maybe it wasn't a permanent thing. You're looking to be in a church planter or something, right? All right, then Stuart Sheehan, the president of World Hope, as he was going to become, or maybe he had just become the president of World Hope. Just became, yeah. Yeah, kind of puts his arm around you and says, hey, Craig, why don't you come think about working with me? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's exactly right. So in 2012, Dr. Sheehan is saying for the first time, I'm about, I've got a vision and I can't, I've got to step out of the church and do this full time because I, I really see it as something that can impact the church worldwide through a Bible institute, just taking seminary in a box and taking it to the most underserved and isolated pastors of the world. And he for said, free. Yeah. for free. And he, and he, and he met me at the church that I was, his son was in my youth in the student group. And he said, you know, French, you have a West African network. How about coming alongside us and doing seminary in a box in West Africa? Don't I got to tell you, he, I'm, I don't know if he's going to listen to this or not. <laughs> he's got two of his directors on it, so he might, but I, I just got to tell you when, when he says, how about it's like, it's like this, this cosmos shifting force. He's done that to me before. He's put his arm around me and said, hey, buddy, how about you get on? Yeah, and it ends yeah. up happening. And then he tells me, hey, how about you go back to school? You get some, and I'm like, I'm never going. Like, no. Like, we're having a baby a year, you know. <laughs> I'm planting yeah. I'm replanting I just went to his house, and there's six of them there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, Stuart, I'm not doing that. I always called him Dr. Sheehan, and he was like, call me Stuart. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm trying to get used to it. But then he says, you know, hey, how about, how about you, you know, learn Spanish? I'm like, dude, no. And now, of course, last year, oh, now you're in charge of Latin America. You know, you, you're going to need to learn Portuguese. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not learning Portuguese, Stuart. Guess what? I got to start in, in January, Craig. Portuguese. Y you know why? Because he said, how about? That's, that's the yeah. way it goes. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I sympathize. Actually, that's, that's actually how I got started up with World Hope also was I met him at, um, he was a, a, an adjunct professor at our seminary, right? Yeah. And on a lunch break. He did the same thing. He says, hey, let me take you and a couple other guys. Actually, Troy was one of them. And uh, we went out to lunch. He said, come on, guys, let's, let's go teach. So, yeah, he, he, was, yeah. Uh, he was accumulating. He was building a team at that time, wasn't he? He was. He was. Yeah. And, and when you get around Dr. Sheehan, you, you just, he's got a vision and a passion, a humility and a love for Jesus that you just go, man, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. When he says what he's doing worldwide, it's like, that makes sense. Yeah. A lot of things don't make sense. That makes sense. So, yeah. yeah, that's great. So then the interesting thing to me about about what, and, and this is still your story that, that I'm talking about here, but it, I'm kind of trying to pull the camera back and just see kind of the way God works in the world. It's interesting because you've got these relationships and this network that you just referenced in Africa. 
specifically at that time, West Africa, right? And so then, I don't know how Jean-Paul came into the picture, whatever, but it just seems like there were there was one um, one linchpin. Like, once this thing fell, you know, into place, then everything else just opened up. And so now, from where we're at now, I'm sitting here looking at these thousands of disciples and these hundreds and hundreds of pastors that are making, you know, thousands of disciples all over the place. And it's like all of that, in some sense, on the timeline, went back to one relationship, right? It did. And, you know, if you if I think about that, as we were developing that team in, in the Paris suburbs, John Paul was a new convert. Was he really? In his 40s. No way. In Paris, selling clothes in the same area of the world because he's West African. He knows where West Africans are. And so he goes to the church that I go to and we and, and I'm preaching in this church once every four four Sundays, just part of the elder team. And uh, Jean-Paul's in the church. He just became a believer. He's an Ivoirian. And he says, you're telling your story. I want to go with you and evangelize because that's my heart. I I, want to evangelize my people. I've just come to know Jesus and I want to tell everybody. And so he and I would go together for a long time and just, he would be selling his clothes, talking about Jesus. I'd be giving DVDs out and we would just be evangelizing these unreached people. And so when Stuart asked me to do this, one of the first conversations I had was, Jean-Paul, I'm back in the States, you know that, but I found a ministry or a ministry found me, God opened the door to, uh, would your ministry, because what Jean-Paul became, what God used him for was not only did he become a believer in Paris through this little bitty church, and by the way, there are, France only has little bitty churches, there's Mm -hmm. less than 1% evangelical population. True post-Christian country. In all of France. And so for him to be able to be, find the testimony and a true witness was a a God thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I say Jean, but Jean Paul becomes an evangelist to his country. He He doesn't just keep it. So he, he spent part of the time in Paris and then part of the time back correct. in Ivory Coast, right? So he would go home and see his family, which yeah. was kind of on the border of Burkina Faso. And, Way the heck and out he, there. And he, and he just said, you know, I want to do Jesus things. I want to start a, a, disp- a, a dispensary to help the people get, you know, just have something because they don't have any kind of nurse or doctor in this area of the world. It's so isolated. So he started serving his people and sharing the gospel. And in the end, by the time I got there in 2014 to start training leaders, he had already got it, already used him to plant. You ready? Over 100 churches. Among no way. His people group who did not yet have the Bible in the New Testament, the Lobiri people group, which is what David is. Uh-huh. And so he's the... He was the one that got saved in Paris, came down to his people group, and just was an evangelist like Paul, who just went from village to village and shared the gospel, planted 100 small churches. And then when I came and said, hey, can we come train those guys that you've, you're trying to get elders to lead these churches? We can come. If we can get them down to Yamasukro, we can train some of your leaders in addition to other denominations who may have the same other people groups that may have yeah. the same growth that you're having. And that first class in Yamasukro, I think we had 242 students or something. Like, well, it was a little less than that. It was almost 200. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, yeah, somewhere else. And then when you guys got done, they upped it to 500. Yeah. And I, dude, I went, so the, you know this story, but just the, the listeners, I went back um, when, when they were at 500 students. It was me and uh, Bill Tharp. Right. So we go, we go back there and it was hosted in this church building by that was owned by some guy that thought he was the apostle of whatever. And so I'm going over there and you called me beforehand and you warned me and you said, Hey, listen, 
the guy's probably a heretic. I'm summarizing. These are not your words, but you said the guy's probably a heretic. You say what you got to say. If you guys talk doctrine, you talk Bible, speak the truth. But just remember, if you make him mad, we might lose our building. So just don't pick a fight. Right? <laughs> it's kind of like how it came across to me. And I'm like, okay. So we go over there and this guy on a lunch break, he invites me and Bill over to his office, which is in the next building over. And, um, and he just sat there and stared at us. And he was like, this is my office. We're like, cool. He's like, this is my air conditioner. Okay. All right. Yeah. This is my chair. It's a big chair. This is my desk. Very nice desk. And we're just like, what is this guy doing right now? And then he would just sit and there was this long, awkward silence. And in retrospect, I was, that was my first experience like that across that kind of cultural divide. And in retrospect, he was wanting some kind of honor to be shown, whether it was a gift or a, you know, or a something, but maybe, maybe just a kiss of the ring. I'm not really sure, but it was kind of like, all right, well, Thanks for your hospitality and welcoming us in. Can we go back and teach now? And so we did. And it was like, what a strange, you know, moment that was. But all those connections get made. And some of those guys who were his disciples, I guess I'd say, they, they walked into the, the class um, with yellow shirts with his picture on it. I think it was his picture. But, I mean, they were, they were his yeah. disciples, right? Typical prosperity gospel yeah. man of God. Yeah. Yep, yep. I'm the apostle. And so what, what do they call it over there? The big man? It's kind of a big concept the man in Africa. of God, yeah. Um, de Dieu. Yeah. 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 And so by the, you know, by the end of that week, that three days, really that, that long weekend in training, we got to have a lot of conversations about, Hey, what's, what is, what is authority in the church actually look like? What's the authority of the text and how much authority does a person have in relation to the text? And what happens if somebody's outside of the word of God and first Corinthians four going beyond what is written and things like that. And so it was, there was some, you know, some uh, sensitive subjects for sure, but this is what everybody in the world is navigating. Right. And especially if you don't have a Bible in your own language, or if you don't, um, if you don't have the ability to read a Bible that might be in your language or something. And so who, who's going to go and straighten that stuff out? Who's going to help these guys? It's got to be the pastors. Yeah. So if we can train the pastors, if we can train the church leaders, then they don't need the Americans after time. There's enough trained people that they can, the cultures can, can become biblicized themselves, right? right? Without becoming Americanized. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the goal. I mean, the, the world hope. So to kind of finish that story, we, we, we start in Yamasukro. You, we have several teachers go there. We go through the 16 course life cycle, 2014 is when it starts, the 15, 16, 17. We finally get through all the courses. We have 390 of the original 500 mm-hmm. that actually finish all the courses keep the character supposedly of first Timothy three and Titus one and uh, who passed the final exam. And so we, we give some diplomas. We have a little party. We always want to celebrate just the work that they did. Cause the majority of our, of our students, as you know, this is probably the first time they've ever had any kind of ceremony to say, you finished something, mm-hmm. you finished an educational systematic modular something and they, we just, yeah. yeah, and we just invite the family and we celebrate. But the goal is always Second Timothy two two. What Paul comes to teach Timothy in front of faithful witnesses, we want the Timothys to take to faithful men, so that the faithful men can teach others also, so that all of Ivory Coast, not just Yamasucro in its, um, you know, its suburbs, but we want all of Ivory Coast to have that. So since the graduation in two thousand seventeen. David, who is John Paul's nephew, became the leader of that work and became, we asked him to coordinate the growth. And so from 2017 to today, they have started over 
20 locations in Ivory Coast itself still have about 15 areas of Ivory Coast they still want to hit. They've had they've graduated more than a thousand more students with a diploma in ministry, but really the ultimate goal for us is right theology. Yeah, yeah. They have right theology in their hands to lead their churches in a country that was very isolated and underserved with right doctrine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, not only have they started so many in, in, in Ivory Coast, but they've gone over the border and started with 200 pastors in Burkina Faso, 200 pastors in Conakry, Guinea. Oh, it's that many there. I didn't know. Yeah. That. And then they also just started in Niamey, uh, Niger. So, which is, yeah, as, as you know, if you're listening to this today, they are in the middle of turmoil in, in, in Niger. So pray for Niger, but we've started there and we're translating already into their local language. They said, French, you know, we had it last year. It was okay, but can you get it in Hausa? Yes. And so we're translating into one of the biggest languages that encompasses Niger and Nigeria. So that's just kind of giving you the life cycle. They've had, we graduated in 2017. Since then, we've had more than 10 more graduations, and it's all been nationally run. That mother tongue thing is such a big deal. David is a beast. I wish he could understand this because he he only, (laughs) he doesn't speak English, but man, I love that guy. I remember you telling me when, when COVID hit, they, no, it was, uh, it wasn't COVID. It was, um, uh, Ebola. And they, they had basically shut down Liberia in a lot of ways. And definitely that border there between Ivory Coast and Liberia. I think it was Liberia, right? And he was setting up, he was going over to the border and setting up speakers to preach the gospel into Liberia, sure, yeah. right? <laughs> you yeah, told he's, me that. He's, a, he's an evangelist. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's such a gentle guy, too. You wouldn't expect him to be like this multinational Christian gospel mogul. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. his he just takes the gospel places, man. He just gets it done. Just a gifted guy. I mean, he's a Timothy who absorbed... His education level, he got to fourth grade and then had to go work for the family because, back, again, back in the isolated, underserved area where he was a lobby, his people group, you know, he, he heard the gospel from his uncle yep. and uh, became a believer and was just working, but had so much, uh, his intelligence is off the charts. His education may be low, but his intelligence is off the chart and God has used him powerfully. Yeah, yeah. And people rightly respect him when they see him. And that's one of those things that God does also is you see him raising up, not always who you would expect, but then in retrospect, it's like, oh, I get what God was, I'm seeing now what God was seeing, right? right? You see a guy with a fourth grade education, maybe as a human, that's what you see. He runs a fish shop or something. I, they, I think that's, yeah, yeah that's right. is, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he's that's all new really to him. Before that, he was an agriculturist. Okay. Just yeah. working the fields and uh, eventually got his driver's license and drove taxis. Yeah. And then God sees this guy's like, he's going to take the gospel into Burkina Faso. He's going to take yeah. the gospel oh. into, into Liberia without even setting foot on Liberian soil. That's my dad, my dude right it's there. It's kind of like Peter and Andrew in the boat just fishing. And when Jesus comes, Man, I'll yeah. make you fisher of men, bro. That's right. Okay, so there's this thing that we've been saying for a long time, and I don't know, I'm, I'm sure it's well-known in the missions world, but I don't know if it's well-known to everybody. We've been saying for a long time, okay, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, definitely 50 years from now, Africa is going to be the global center of Christianity. Now, that's probably open to some definition. You know, on, on some terms, you could debate what that means. But you guys were over in Kenya, for the ABTEN thing, right? Which stands for something. I don't even know what. What's ABTEN stand for? So African Baptist Theological Education Network. Nice. Okay. ABTEN's much easier. So you guys were over there, and I'm, I didn't get to go, but I'm watching, I'm watching uh, Stuart's presentation, right? And by the way, I also watched that one that you did with David where you were translating for him. Beautiful. But Stuart said, we're there. 
Africa is now the new global center of Christianity. So that's a big shift, man, because since, I don't know what, man, the, the late 1700s has been the West, right? England, Netherlands, 1800s, America really jumps into the fray with the Second Great Awakening. Yeah. The Western world has been the center of global Christianity. Now, I guess you could say it, it, it still is in terms of um, maybe intellectual output, translation work, things like that. But something, something shifted to Africa. Tell us what we're talking about when we say that. Well, if you just go by the numbers, today, Google will tell you with 2023, Africa's got almost 1.5 billion people living on the continent. And then missiologists will tell you that if you include Catholics and you include prosperity gospel as Christians, you've got about 700 of those, 700 million of those that identify as Christians in Africa. So just by sheer numbers, it is the largest continent population of Christians today. Mm. So it, Africa being the center of Christianity, it is already by numbers. They would already pre- beat out Asia. That's crazy because yeah. like most of the people in the world are in Asia. Yeah. And, and you hear about the explosive growth in China and so on. And but as far as sheer number of Christians wow. on a continent, Africa has 700 million and so, and that was part of Stuart's proposal or, 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 you know, Abtan was just trying to, to grasp that. What, so if we have 700 million Christians in Africa, they are, and it's the biggest population in the world. What kind of missions is Africa going to be sending? Is it going right. to be theologically sound? Is it going to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so Africa already just by sheer population is the center of Christianity. That's wild. And it's interesting what you bring up because when, when you talk about Christians, you're talking about people that identify as Christians. That doesn't necessarily mean that they know or believe the gospel. Of course. And so inside of that group is a really messy spot. And we got to get in there and, and educate, right? right. Because right. not because, you know, and I got to be clear for the people listening. I mean, you know, Craig and I, we talk about this stuff all the time, but we're, we're not saying because we've got, you know, all of the answers to untie every Gordian knot out there in Christianity. But when the Bible's clear on something... And if you have that and you don't bring it to people, you got a problem, right? It's like um, it's like Ezekiel 3, man. If you see somebody running towards bloodshed and you don't warn them, their blood's on your head, right? And right. so to give theological training in a way that doesn't, um, in a way that, that doesn't Americanize them, but it, it, it disciples them, that's, that's a huge deal because you can't just say, oh, 700 million Christians, Africa's reached. Done right? We're going to go somewhere where there aren't any Christians. It's like, no, 700 million Christians. By the way, Christians are messy. I don't know if you've ever walked into a church before people, People. but Christians are messy. The bride of Christ is a crazy chick. And sometimes we got to help. So that means there's more work to do, not less. In fact, some of the places where we don't have a whole lot to do are the unreached places. It's like, we want something to do there, but we keep running into brick walls. So yeah, Africa is this like, like, you know, as far as the gospel goes, it seems to me like you drop a seed on the ground and something grows. You know, there's a, there's a book at Abtian that was shared and just published recently. It's called The Abandoned Gospel. And it's, and it's written, the goal for Abtian, the African Baptist Theological Education Network, is to gather African theologians, right doctrine theologians, who write African theology and African books on Christianity and discipleship so that they have more of a say into the African culture. And so this book, The Abandoned Gospel, kind of goes through the history. And I think that was part of your question of how did Africa become the center of Christianity? How did they, how did it become 700 million uh, Christians in Africa? And so they give the history, Africans kind of give the history of 
you know, yes, it started with Europeans coming and trading with Africa and then eventually coming and, and colonizing Africa. So what man intended for bad, God made good out of it by even through the colonization, which was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he was able to send missionaries from the West. And of course, in this, in this book, they speak of Great Britain is primarily responsible for sending missionaries, right? Sound doctrine missionaries. And then they begin to talk of other Western European nations. And, and eventually America would be a part of that. But in the 17, 1800s through trade, through unfortunately slave trade, through colonization, at the same time, missionaries were there sharing the right gospel with the Africans. And little by little, it, it began to take hold and, and grow. And so in the, you know, the Americans began to come at the end of the 1800s, as you just mentioned, in the early 1900s, America became more of an engine of missions. And so in this book, it just speaks of how the missionaries shared the gospel all over Africa and how Africans began to receive it and how they began to share it mm-hmm. and how it grew to what it is today. But as you said, the bride is messy in Africa. There are a lot of problems as well. And so I don't... Let's get into that. Yeah. What are some of the biggest barriers? So in this book, it... You know, these are Africans telling you and me, which is what we need, African theologians telling us what the biggest problems and barriers to to sound doctrine in Africa today. And it is neo-Pentecostalism and the prosperity gospel. All right, so let, let's have you distinguish. Now, my listeners, they they hear me and Pastor Ben, the bearded beaver, shout out. He couldn't join us on this one because I didn't tell him we were doing it. I just said, Craig, let's go hit the studio. Uh, sorry, Ben, love you, dude. But they're always hearing us yell about you know, about these things as far as like hyper prosperity and things. Can you distinguish for us in your terms? Cause you got to deal with this on, on the soil all the time. What's the difference between Pentecostalism and neo Pentecostalism? Because we got Pentecostal brothers and sisters. We may disagree about some points of doctrine over a friendly cup of coffee, but you know, whatever, like sometimes siblings need separate bedrooms. It's not right. a huge deal. But when we talk about neo Pentecostalism, we're talking about a real problem here. Right. And the, the difference would be mainly would be that, they kind of classify it as charismatic. And so they would say that if you're a neo-Pentecostalist, you believe that uh, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't necessarily receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. So a neo-Pentecostalist would say, hey, there is a moment in time. You've just started your journey, but there's going to be a moment in time where you really meet God. Mm. And that's going to be the time when you are, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And when that happens, you'll speak in tongues. Second and so baptism stuff. Second baptism. And so there, that is probably the number one definition is there is a second time in your walk with Christ where the Holy Spirit will come on you. And evidence of that in neo-Pentecostalism is that you will speak in tongues. You will have now, a heavenly language with the Lord. And just to be clear, th- this experience of, of, you know, salvation, you turn to Christ, you know, you repent of your sins, you believe in Christ. And then you have some very powerful experiences with the Holy Spirit thereafter. This is normal Christianity, right? Like this, I'm not going to say normative in the sense that this ought to be what we're expecting as a baseline, but to, to come to Christ, like when I, when I got saved, I didn't feel any different the next day, right? I'm 12 years old. I pray to receive Jesus. And you know, there was, let's say that was a Wednesday or something. I wake up on Thursday and I just go back to school and I'm like, I don't feel any different. Now in retrospect, I can see that that was kind of the point where God started doing things and changing things, but it wasn't this wild experience. Now, since then, I've had all kinds of wild experiences with the Holy Spirit. And he's, you know, he has done some things that I would describe as straight up mystical in in my experience of them. But 
Well, so let's let's have you explain this then. We're we're not kicking out mystical experiences. What we're saying is to use those as like a diagnostic for when you're actually born again. I'm, I'm not saying this right. Straighten this out for me. What's what's the actual problem here? So, you know, again, for them, it's uh, you know, it's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. They they place a a a difference in time when you when when you and I say. Right doctrine, we would say, is we share the gospel. We tell people that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And right doctrine from Genesis to Revelation, we believe that if somebody does that, then he is his sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit comes into his life to begin a process of sanctification, and he has all the rights and privileges of, of God's glory. It's Ephesians 1, yeah. That is from the day that that faith is entered into the heart. All of that is the believers. That is what right doctrine would be in a, in a theologically. But the, the neo-Pentecostalist will say that if you put your faith in Christ, they'll kind of keep it biblical, then that's good. You're starting your walk with Christ, but there will be a time down the road, if you're a true believer, that you'll actually be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that'll be an emotion. That'll be a service. That will be something's going to happen. But it didn't happen the moment that you put your faith in Christ because we just don't see it yet. So let's talk in terms of salvation then, or like uh, going to heaven when you die. Let's run a scenario. You're teaching a class in, let's say, Niger. All right. So you're out there teaching these, these pastors in Niger, and you say, all right, a guy turns to faith, he, he repents of his sin, turns to faith in Christ, and he is, you know, and he responds to the gospel right there. Then he dies, never got a second baptism. The neo-Pentecostal background pastors in your class in Niger, would they say that he went to heaven or not? That's a good question that I don't know if I know the complete answer. I've not asked that, that, that specific question to them specifically, but some of the things that I know that they say are evidence of being a Christian would be that you would have a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That baptism of the Holy Spirit would allow you to speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. That would all be proof. So it's kind of a faith in Jesus and... And these proofs. And these proofs. Okay. So, I, you know... To be honest, it's probably not straight in their heads a lot of times, right? Probably not. Yeah. And and so, you know, not only is it you speak in tongues, but, you know, the prosperity gospel comes in as well with that and says, you know, once you start speaking in tongues and you've got the Holy Spirit, then what comes with that is you're going to have a healthy, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to, you're not going to get sick anymore. Uh, you, you're Eventually, you're going to die, but you're just not going to be chronically sick and, and you're and, you know, and so it just, uh, those are all signs of true salvation in their worldview. Right. And so that is what Africa says is, is, is one of the biggest barriers. Yeah. Okay. So he said neo-Pentecostalism and then I interrupted and got you off track there. What were the rest of them? Well, in prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Okay. So, yeah, and, and these, those go together. They really do. Yeah. 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 And one of the things about, about, um, sloppy theology, I guess we could call it, is that it, it does kind of combine one with, you know, they do combine one with another and you'll wind up having things that are kind of two sides of the same coin. So there's not these distinct lines between, okay, that's a prosperity practicing church and that's a neo-Pentecostal church. They sort of travel the same train tracks to to where they're going. It's, it's a very messy world. And I've noticed also the uh, the terminology is slippery, right? And so you'll try and say something because they use biblical terminology. And so you'll, you'll say something and then they're like, oh, yeah, but that's not what I mean by that word. And it's yeah. like, we're, we're using yeah. the same words, but we're, we're speaking completely different gospels. Well, and, and they say in here, you know, 
the prosperity preachers, they're the ones who have the big churches because they also have all of the material wealth. They're also attractive to the educated class of Africa. They attract them because the educated class wants that kind of lifestyle Mm -hmm. that they promise. And so the billboards are now, you know, come to my church where you can have, you know, we've got these job seminars and we've got this, 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 you know, nothing's about knowing God and being able to share the gospel. And, and some of these guys, when they speak in here, you know, they, they say when you go into those churches, you hear them wanting to slay the spirit and remove the spirit. And they're not praying for the lost. Mm-hmm. They're just praying for, you, you know, one thing they say is prosperity gospel fits so well with their past animism. Yeah. The witch doctor. It used to be the witch doctor that had the power, but now... Through Satan's disguise, it's it's the man of God. It's the prophet. It's the apostle who has, he's got a kind of a clean way to get rid of the spirits. Whereas in the past, it was the witch doctor for thousands of years. Right. So the pastor is the new shaman. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what they say. Well, we, and we ran and into that why, in, yeah. in Benin. We, we had this guy that, uh, you know, he was, he, <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know if possessed is the right word. There was something. Something not cool going on with this guy. And he was a pastor on Sundays, and then the rest of the week he was, you know, sacrificing to the spirits and stuff. And he basically said, and he was one of these guys didn't have a Bible, you know. He, he basically said, well, this spirit named Jesus wants us to worship on Sundays and, you know, wear a suit, do, do whatever, and sing French translations of Fanny Crosby hymns, and so that's what we do. And then the rest of the week we do this. And me and Bill were like, no, 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 no. And so we actually went to Colossians 1, talked about the exclusivity of Christ, and this guy ended up getting saved in a Bible institute. You know? Then he had to go so lead his church to Christ because they were, it, it was syncretism, right? It was animism with Jesus, and it wasn't Christianity. So it all gets very, very... Um, muddy. It does. And, and what you just said, we see all the time. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, even in Central America and South America, in Africa, I mean, we just had a testimony of, of a new Bible Institute opening in Zambia and seven of the pastors that came got saved because they heard finally for the first time, the right gospel. We did that in Sudan with, uh, with our brother Wes. Mm-hmm. Goes up there. They shout share, out Wes White. Love that guy. They they share soteriology and what it means to be saved. And and if I remember right, it's more than twenty of the crowd of one hundred pastors give their life for the first time to Christ, really? and they've been preaching for ten years. I am so glad that we don't have recordings of those sermons that they've been preaching. Because <laughs> at this point, they don't matter, right? Nailed to the cross, dude. It's gone. That's right. That's awesome. Okay, so I'm going to ask you in a minute about your favorite conversion story, all right? But while I give you a chance to think, I, I want to I tell this story about East Africa because this is some of the devastation that's caused by this um, prosperity gospel type of stuff. So we're, we're with Munene out there, and uh, Kawangwari is, is the second biggest slum in Nairobi, Kenya, all right? The biggest slum is called Kibera. And so we were working in Kawangwari, but he takes me over to Kibera just because it's kind of a different world. It's a little bit rougher. The whole thing is built on, I mean, you've been there. The, the, the whole thing is built on a, a, a hill. It's, it's like nine kilometers long by five kilometers wide. And so when it rains, that hill is muddy and it's just a, just a horrible place to be because <laughs> everything's just sliding downhill in this whole slum. And so we're out there working and it was kind of rainy and it was wet and slippery. And this guy comes into the slum with a truck. A pickup truck, little. It was like a like a like a Mazda SE five type of thing. Little truck, and the back of it's full of dirt, and uh, it's got a shovel in it. And I'm like, why is he bringing a shovel, like a truck full of dirt, to a place where it's all just mud? Like, where's he going to put that? 
Where does he need it? Why didn't you just get mud from over there and move it over there? And he says, well, that guy, um, he, he comes through here, him and other guys like that. They come through here and say, we just brought dirt back from the Holy Land. And if you get a handful of this dirt and you take it to the fields where you're working, then the field will be blessed and your, your employers and the, the landowners and stuff will like you better and things like that. Your, your, food, your family will get more food. So come and buy some of this. And these guys are turning a buck on it. I said, where did he get the dirt? He said, Kawaguari. <laughs> they just shovel it up there, drive it over to Kibera and sell it like yeah. it's Israeli yeah. dirt. And yeah. so that's, that's what the prosperity gospel reduces Christianity to mm-hmm. in some circumstances. Yeah. But we could tell the horror stories all day long. Yeah. We're gospel people. Let's talk yeah. some good news. Amen. One of your favorite conversion stories from, from Africa. Yeah. And so one time in Ivory Coast, I just remember I was teaching in, in the Bible Institute and they, and they had um, a lot of the, this particular group had, you, you could tell that there was a lot of prosperity gospel or the sign of their ministry was the miracles that they could do. And so they said, well, you're teaching us all about salvation in Christ. What, what's, what's the proof of your ministry? What miracle do you do? And I said, well, let me show you. And I said, you guys come out outside with me right now. And so I take five of them and the rest of them can kind of gather at the door and watch. I say, don't, not everybody come out because it's going to cause a scene. Because there's probably about 100 in this class. And so I take them outside and, and I want to walk, but I can't walk away from the microphone. So we, we go outside and there's two guys over there selling coffee, some Nescafe little, little thing on the street. And I say, Let's go over there and let's share the gospel with them. And so we go over there and we say they're, they're selling coffee. I buy a coffee from him. And I just say, hey, hey, do you know about Jesus? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, what do you know about Jesus? He said, I, you know, I think he's a good guy. I, you know, I don't really go to church. I just I do my own thing. And I said, well, what if you were to die today? What do you think would happen to, your, to you? And he said, well, I think I'm, I'm good enough. You know, just a typical response. Mm-hmm. This guy was just uh, not a churchgoer on the street in Ivory Coast. That and sounds it, like a, a response you'd get on the street in America. I, absolutely. And so, he, and, I, and I just said to him, hey, can I share with you, we're here just learning more about Jesus and what he taught. Can I share with you just what Jesus said happens when you die? And I just shared the gospel with him and said, you know, when you die, you're going to face the judgment seat of God. And he's going to say, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? And Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross to save you from your sins, was dead and was buried and rose again so that you, so that he could give you life and conquer your sins, Satan, and death forever. And today, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can have salvation. And that guy said, you mean if I put my faith in Jesus, that my sins are forgiven? I mean, that's the way he was talking to me. And I was looking at the guys who asked for a miracle in my ministry, and I said, yes, that's a, it's as simple as that, but it's also complicated as that. You, He expects the rest of your life to live in, in, in an offering of thanksgiving to what he's done for you. But would you like to put your faith in Jesus? And he said, as he was giving me the Nescafe, yeah, man. And so we pray right there for him to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I look at the two pastors that are in my class, and I say, that's the sign of my ministry, sharing the gospel and watching God save when we share the right gospel. Boom. And it just showed the whole class that there you go. Yeah. Wow. Man, that, that is like, that's first Kings 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's 2.0. 
right? <laughs> because that's this one has e- eternal implications. That's heart change. That's yeah. gorgeous. And even though it involved a cup of Nescafe, which I'm sorry about that, that you had to drink Nescafe, that's suffering for Jesus. And these guys, you know, the prosperity guys are looking for a miracle of healing. Yeah. They're looking for a miracle of a sign miracle of tongues, healing. And that's what they were looking for. And I said, I, God just saved somebody from eternal death. If you have a gift of healing, you can heal somebody for maybe another day or year or week. Yep. This guy is healed forever. I could which, resurrect somebody, but Lazarus had to die again at some point, right? right. That's right. That sucks. Yeah. So in, 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 in biblical terms, the, um, I'm just thinking about like different passages that would that would say exactly what you just said, and we've already been told this, right? So like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, He who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made the light of the glory of God shine in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. I, I paraphrase the end of that. But it's like what just happened there with the dude selling Nescafe was an equal miracle to creation. And even if these guys couldn't see it, Creative they were, faith. yes, they were seeing a new creation. They were, if, if they could, if they could rewind and watch God create the cosmos like that, right? This would have been more, more beautiful to them. Which, which miracle do you want in your ministry? All right. So it does seem that there's a lot of emphasis right now in the global mission in, in just the missions world on pastor training. Okay. I'm, I've got my own understanding of kind of where that came from historically, but it's just more like observational. But do you, I, I guess what I want to get is your thoughts on, on the era of missions that we're in, right? Because it, it seems like it, it's, it seems like there, that the God kind of accomplishes the mission in, in broad strokes over, you know, periods of maybe a couple hundred years or something. And so the, in starting in the Eh, mid to late 1700s, I guess it was just this, this rapid fire scorched earth evangelism, right? It was just like, go share the gospel with everybody. And, and to a large degree it worked right now. There's a lot of people that still haven't heard. We could, we could cite all the stats from the Joshua project.com about how many people still haven't heard the gospel. And there's a big problem still to solve, but man, the, the, the beautiful feet that covered the earth didn't do a terrible job. Right. And so you got converts all over the place. But then the problem comes in that a lot of the a lot of the believers, like Acts fourteen, right? I think it's verses twenty one and twenty two, right around there. I was just looking at it that that Paul and his crew went back to encourage the saints that were made in Lystra. I think it was, um, you know, they, they went back to check on them, to instruct them. You hear him saying in his letters, "I want to come back to you to bear some spiritual harvest among you," and things like that. It seems like some of that got lost in the sauce somewhere, right? So we've got a lot of Christians without deep roots, you know, theologically. That's right. And so it seems like now we're shifting from a time of, of global evangelization with, you know, mostly Westerners, I guess, on, on balance, doing a lot of the global evangelization to trying to train theologically and then invest the rest of the evangelization to the natives of the countries being evangelized, right? That's right. Do what? What happened there? Like, I mean, like, I, I just, because it's easy to say, oh, yeah, God's doing something in, in, God used to do that. Now he's kind of focusing on this. Yeah. But I mean, was there a linchpin event that it was like, man, this is where the problem became clear. We got to go and fix this. And Stuart and other guys start seeing yeah. this. Well, and, and, and Stuart says it so well. So all, all I will do is kind of quote what, he, what, how God gave him the vision for this. And, you know, as you, as we, as you and I quote, together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, 18 through 20, where Jesus says the great commission, he tells the church, here's your work. Here's your mission. All authority has been given to me. Therefore go church 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the ones who believe in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then that's kind of where we stopped. We, we shared the gospel. We made disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've been doing that for a couple hundred years, as you just said, very well. Billy Graham was, his crusades did that. And, and many other crusades followed his model and went. And even World Hope started with Dwight Davis's dad, Harold Davis, the founder of World Hope, was a, was a charismatic evangelist. And just and he started and, in like the 60s or something, right? Yes, yeah. in, in Asia. And then eventually God opened doors for him to go to, to Kenya and to South Africa and to Honduras. But a lot of that was just was crusade evangelism, preaching the gospel and then praying with those who wanted to be saved. And little and, and then Stuart Sheehan and Dwight Davis come alongside that. And they're they're part of that ministry. And then but Stuart's teaching at Golden Gate Seminary and uh, just begins to think, you know, Theology that I see all over the world, I see people coming to Christ. But that last part of the Great Commission that I didn't say was Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and do what? Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And that's where we failed for about 200 years is we didn't do a good job on leadership training, theological training of the leaders, going back to Lystra and getting the elders and saying, Timothy, I'm going to teach you everything I've got in front of faithful witnesses. And I want you to do the same to all the leaders in Crete or Ephesus or, or wherever you are, Titus and Timothy. And so that was a burden on Stuart's heart back in the late nineties and two thousands. And that's when Stuart began to mull over the idea of we've got to go back to these places that we did all these crusades because theology is a train wreck. Yeah. We've been good at sharing our beautiful feet the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we've not been good at teaching them everything that Jesus commanded us. And so that's that was the main catalyst for Stuart to say, hey, let's take seminary in a box and let's go back to Lystra. Let's go back to the Asian places where we had the Crusades, the, the places he had partnerships. So where does he, he does his trials in, in Kenya, in Honduras, in Honduras, yeah. Ecuador, mm-hmm. where they already had relationships from doing crusades. But let's start training your leaders and see if this works. And let's go back and teach them everything Jesus commanded us. And, and, and so I think over the last 50 years, missions in general, even the IMB, the International Mission Board, has said, we've been good at sharing the gospel, but we've not been as good as giving good theological education to the leaders. And so they've really, the IMB has put an emphasis on theological education. Yeah. And good for them, man. That's that's great. And you know, I don't. I, I want to be careful that when we talk about the the failures of the church, that you guys listening don't hear. You know, okay, we've we we're in this era now where we finally got the the secret sauce, right? It's, it's not like that. Like we we don't want to throw shade on these people who who sacrificed and and um, you know, died for or, or gave up you know things that more valuable than life uh, to themselves for the sake of evangelizing, because we stand on their shoulders, right? However, it is also true that every generation, even the ones that we revere and the guys that we look back and say, man, thank God for that guy. I aspire to be like that in my ministry. These are, these are men and women who have limited purviews, right? You can't fit everything on your radar screen and look at the faithfulness of God to, uh, to uh, plug the holes. 
right? Sure. And every generation, as we as we, as a pendulum swings to correct a problem, we're going to leave a problem somewhere else. And I can't tell you what it is right now, right? Mm-hmm. I wish I could because then we'd go and fix it. But we're gonna we're gonna fix this theological education problem by the grace of God. I expect it to work. And then if the Lord doesn't come back first, then you know my kids or. 200 years from now, our great, great, whatever grandkids, they're going to come back and say, boy, Grandpa Kendrick and Grandpa Myers, they, they put a lot of blood in the mud for, for the mission. And I appreciate that. They missed this. Now sure. I got to go and hit that. And God's sure. going to give them a taste for it too. It's just, you know, the, the whole timeline of missions is under the control of sovereign God. Well, the whole right? timeline of the church. That's it. Yeah. Beautiful. You keep seeing the bits and pieces for 2000 years of how God is raised up this part to do this. And then, you know, eventually somebody comes in and and finishes the work or. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's great stuff. Craig, listen, I'm going to go ahead and let our listeners go because we've kept them going for almost an hour now and you and I could swap stories all day long, but now we're going to go do it over dinner instead. All right. Thanks for being here, bro. I appreciate you. you. I love you, man. And I will pass along all of the, uh, the, the wonderful feedback and the prayers for you that uh, come in as a result of this. All right, guys, Jesus deserves disciples. Go give him some peace. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love Him because He first loved us.